This morning we're coming back to 1 Corinthians. This is a letter with lots to say about the life of the church. And chapter 14 of this letter is devoted to those times when the church meets together for worship. So times like this. What should these times be like? What should be the emphasis of these times? How should each of us approach these times? What should we expect from them? I wonder how you personally would answer those questions. If someone said to you, what are these times for, what would you say? Well, whatever answer each of us just came up with, we can now test that answer against the right answer we're about to get from the Bible. We're going to look at this chapter over two weeks. So verses 1 to 19 are going to be worshiping together part one. If you're using a church Bible, this is page 1154, or the larger print Bibles, 1785. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll read verses 1 to 19. Follow the way of love, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues... What good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then, I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church... I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is God's word. And for many of us, what Paul talks about here will be totally unfamiliar to us. Tongues, interpreting tongues, prophecy, Okay, he does mention praying and singing, so that's two things we're familiar with. But apart from that, we might wonder what our times of worship together have in common with what went on in Corinth. But let's remember, in this chapter, Paul is not starting out with a blank canvas and setting out his ideal worship service. It's not what he's doing. He is responding to what is actually going on in Corinth. He's starting from where these Christians are. And as he responds to the specific situation, Paul tells the Corinthians how they can move from where they are toward times of worship that are more honoring and pleasing to God. So when we read about worship in Corinth, we have to keep in mind this is one church's specific situation. Paul is not assuming or even hoping this will be every church's situation. When we looked at chapter 12 and Paul's list there of gifts from the Spirit, we noticed as we looked at that list, we should not assume every local church will have all the gifts that are listed. And in fact, if you read through the rest of the New Testament, of all the churches that are mentioned, Corinth is the only church that's described as having manifestations of the gift of tongues. Now, it was a genuine gift of the Spirit. It wasn't fake. They weren't just pretending to speak in tongues. And the fact that tongues aren't mentioned with any other church doesn't prove no other church had tongues. But it does show we're not to take the Corinthian situation as the standard for every other church. The Holy Spirit had given them the gift of tongues in spades, apparently. And they were making a bit of a mess of using that gift. We're not to assume this same gift will even be present in our church fellowship. It may be, or it may not. And if it is present, we're not to assume we'll have the same measure of it, the same abundance of tongues. And even if we did, we wouldn't want to copy the way Corinth was using the gift of tongues. 
So as we look at this this morning, what is relevant to us is not so much what was going on at Corinth. What we need to look for is how Paul redirects the Corinthians. How does he work to correct and improve their times of worship together? That's what will help us as we think about our worship together in our specific situation. And here is Paul's first key point. When we worship together, it is not mainly about me and God. Really? Is that what Paul says? Well, let's walk through these opening verses of chapter 14. Look again at verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Paul is picking up here where he left off at the end of chapter 12. There he said, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, he didn't explain what he meant by that. Although we guessed he meant the ones listed as first, second, and third. That's back in chapter 12, verse 28. He listed apostles, meaning those who first brought the good news about Jesus, then prophets and teachers, those who explain and apply God's word. But before Paul confirmed whether those really were the greater gifts, he broke off to speak for a whole chapter about the way of love. Love isn't a gift of the Spirit, it's a way of life. Everyone who has the Spirit is called to a life of love. That was chapter 13. And now, when Paul comes back to gifts in chapter 14, he is not leaving love behind. Our love is to determine what gifts we desire for the church. Verse 1 says, if we are following the way of love, we will especially desire the gift of prophecy to be manifested in the church. Not so much that I personally will have it or that you will have it, but that it will be liberally distributed among members of the fellowship. Now, back in chapter 12, I said we need to be very cautious about saying what these gifts will look like in practice. Because in many cases, we cannot be sure precisely what they looked like in the New Testament. But I did suggest we might think of prophecy as some form of prompting or insight from the Holy Spirit. But in this chapter... Paul actually uses prophecy as an example of a certain kind of gift. The kind of speaking gifts that can be understood by everyone. So down in verse 6, Paul mentions revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and word of instruction. We might not be sure exactly what Paul meant by each of those and what the precise difference is between each of them. But the one thing they all clearly have in common is that they are understandable words. In this chapter, Paul is using prophecy to stand for things that are said in understandable words. Whether that is a spiritual insight someone shares, 
or a sermon someone preaches, or a Sunday school lesson, or a prayer that someone prays. So throughout this chapter, every time you hear the word prophecy, don't just think of flashes of supernatural insight. Think of understandable words. That's what Paul is focusing on. He says we are to especially desire those kind of gifts in the church. In contrast to the other kind of gifts he mentions, like the gift of tongues. Now, tongues just means languages. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, sometimes in the New Testament, that clearly meant recognizable human languages. And sometimes it didn't match any known human language. The second kind of tongues seems to be what was going on in Corinth. People were praying to God, and as they sought to express their adoration and their gratitude to God, those deep emotions overflowed in words of praise they couldn't even understand themselves. Never mind anyone else understanding them. So one commentator describes tongues as a private language of love. It was a beautiful, God-given, private prayer language. And as we'll see, Paul himself acknowledged the beauty of it. It was part of his own prayer experience. And he would have been delighted if every single one of the Corinthians were given that gift. He knows they won't be, because no gift of the Spirit is given to everyone. But he'd love it if they could all have the gift of tongues. And yet, Paul wishes even more that they'd have another kind of gift. The kind of gift where the words are understandable. Look at the reason he gives for that in verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. It could be that for some of us, these verses turn our whole idea of worship services upside down. Before we started reading this passage, how many of us would have said, the reason I get out of bed and come here on Sunday is to help edify the rest of the church? Don't we tend to come focused on what we personally are going to get out of the experience? But here Paul says, it's not mainly about me and God or you and God. It's about us together building one another up in God's presence. That's what being edified means. In verse 3, Paul explains it as strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. 
This is how Paul wants us to think of our times of worship together. I'm not to come as an individual seeking self-satisfaction. I'm to come as a member of the body aiming to help those around me be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. So this passage is not ultimately about prophecy versus tongues. It's about the need to approach these times as times when it's us and God, rather than just me and God. Now let's be clear, we all need times of just me and God. But by definition, those times are when we are alone with God. Whether or not we are given a private language of love to use in those times, most of us probably won't be, some of us might. But whether we have that private language or not, we still need times when we are alone with God, lost in wonder, love, and praise. But it may come as a shock to hear Paul say we're not to seek those individual experiences when we're met here together. When we're together, it's by aiming to edify others. Here's how a writer called Gordon Fee sums up Paul's point. The point of everything in corporate worship, in other words, when the church is gathered for worship, the point of everything in corporate worship is not personal experience in the spirit, but building up the church itself. The building up of the community is the basic reason for corporate settings of worship. They should not be turned into a corporate gathering for a thousand individual experiences of worship. In our case, we might say dozens of individual experiences. So if Paul were here this morning, and one of us complained to him afterwards that we just didn't get anything out of it this morning, or that we just couldn't worship during this or that song. On the strength of these verses, I think we know what Paul would say. He'd say, where did you get the idea this morning was about you? You're here to build others up, aren't you? What are some ways we can all do that? Well, how about singing all the songs with as much enthusiasm as you can, especially the ones that aren't really your style. That helps everyone else. As you sing God's praises shoulder to shoulder with them, instead of opting out in protest sometimes, or saying that singing in general just isn't your thing, You can also help everyone else by showing an eagerness to hear God's word. Even if you find the sermon hard going, you can help those around you by not chatting through it or playing on your phone, but making an effort to follow it. Making sure that what's being said is actually coming from the Bible that's open in front of you. 
That kind of active listening encourages those around you to do the same. Then what about the half hour to 45 minutes after the organized part of our time has finished? After the last song has been sung? Our tea and coffee time has much greater significance than just an opportunity to get caffeinated. It's a significant opportunity for everyone to be involved in building up the rest of the church. It may be our best opportunity in the whole week to strengthen, encourage, and comfort one another in ones and twos and threes. Some churches have special prayer teams, people that are designated to pray for concerns and needs in the fellowship. But why shouldn't we think of ourselves as one big prayer team? where we're all given the privilege and responsibility of praying for others. And why shouldn't we do it when they're here, when they're right in front of us? Why shouldn't we see the time after the last song as a time to minister to one another in God's presence, to follow up on what we've heard together from God's word? Praying for one another's needs, spiritual or physical. Those of you who are younger, say 14 and under, I know you like to head straight for the car park afterwards to dodge cars. But before you do that, you could pray for each other. You don't have to be a certain age to do that. You don't even have to be baptized to do it. Just ask your friends if there's something going on in their life you could ask God to help them with. Maybe something they're worried about or something they're happy about. You could give thanks to God with them for that. And I'm really not saying that our time has to get all solemn and serious. It doesn't. I'm not suggesting we can't laugh or that we need to speak in holy whispers. But what if each one of us set out for church every week expecting and hoping to build up someone else? Praying before we come that God will bring us in contact with a brother or sister in Christ we can help to strengthen, encourage, and comfort. Maybe just one person. I think if we come hoping for those opportunities, God will give them to us. Here's Paul's second key point. When we worship together, we worship best when we try to be clear and plain. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? In other words, what good is my input unless it's something you can understand, something that's clear, as opposed to something that might be 
very personally satisfying to me, but that's incomprehensible or distracting to you. Paul gives some illustrations of what he means in verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? It's jarring, isn't it, to try and listen to instruments that are making no obvious tune. And it's equally jarring if we come together as a church and what is going on is unclear. That situation is frustrating. But in verse 8, Paul mentions a situation that is more than just frustrating. It's dangerous. If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Here Paul is thinking of an army bugler sending a signal to the troops. And historians tell us just how important that job was in the army. There were different signals the bugler could give for muster, alarm, ambush, pursuit, reassembly, enlistment, encampment, battle formation, funeral, retreat, and homecoming. One writer points out the obvious entailment of that. If the bugler does not know how to give a proper call to battle, or if the trumpet itself was incapable of giving such clear signals, no soldier would know whether they should be preparing for battle, setting up camp, or watching for an ambush. That is not just chaotic, it's dangerous. If the bugler's up there just blowing raspberries, he might be having a great time. But the troops who need direction could end up in serious trouble. The point is, clarity is important in the army, and it's equally important when we worship together as a church. What goes on must be clear and understandable because those around us are supposed to respond to what's going on. That might be a response of repentance or trust or obedience. Might be any number of responses. But how can they respond if what they're hearing and seeing is unclear and confusing? Tom Wright says, Blowing the trumpet is supposed to make people get ready for their various military tasks. Speaking in church is supposed to make people get ready to serve God in the world, whatever their calling may be. So again, this is about more than just prophecy versus tongues. First of all, it concerns those who lead and speak from the front. They need to give careful thought and planning to what goes on in our times together so there'll be a clear message that applies to the songs we sing they need to make sense they need to be true to what scripture teaches it applies to the prayers and the sermons too if those at the front dither about or show off or talk nonsense 
or talk in a way that sounds impressive but is actually over all of our heads? If that goes on, then the person speaking might be having a whale of a time themselves. They might think their performance is going great. But how is the rest of the church being built up? How can the rest of the church respond? How can they hear God's voice and do what he wants them to do? And it's not just about those who speak at the front. When we speak to each other, when we pray for each other, let's just speak plainly and clearly. We don't need to use special language or obscure language that we think sounds more holy. We don't need to try and impress one another with how many Bible verses we can quote in a prayer or in a conversation. Nor do we need to tell the other person how victorious and awesome we were when we faced difficulties. It is possible sometimes for our times of sharing to be competitions to show off about who's most spiritual. That was the root of the tongue speaking going on in Corinth. Some in the church were flaunting their private prayer language in public. And it left others in the church feeling alienated and second class. It wasn't edifying the church at all. And so after talking about the trumpeter, look what Paul says in verse 9. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. How sad it would be if you and I were to come here so focused on having our own spiritual party that those around us ended up feeling like strangers to us. Because our strange words or our strange behavior made them feel they didn't belong. Even though this should be where they feel most at home. When we're together, let's aim to be clear and plain in everything we do. Finally, in our passage, Paul brings all this together for us. In verses 13 to 19, he says, We worship best when we worship with heart and mind. Verse 13, <clears throat> For this reason, in other words, because we want to build up the church, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. I take that to mean the person who may have been given the gift of a private prayer language. They should seek to pray in understandable words when they're in the church. We'll see as we read on. Paul believes tongues are a wonderful gift for when someone is alone with God, but they're not for using out loud when we gather for worship. He goes on in verse 14. 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's helpful for us to know that at this time, it was popular to think of a person's spirit Today, we might say their heart. It was popular to think of that part of a person as being superior to their mind. So if you were on an emotional high, that was considered better than when you used your mind to reason things out in a logical way. It's similar to the idea some Christians have today that things that are planned must be less spiritual than things that are done off the cuff. So I've had some people tell me they enjoy spirit-led worship, by which they seem to mean worship that's not been given much thought in advance. But Paul doesn't seem to share that view. He would never deny that emotions have a significant part to play in our worship. A crucial part. There's nothing at all wrong with emotions. God gave them to us to use for his glory. There's nothing wrong with you get, getting excited as we worship together. There's nothing wrong with your joy overflowing. There's nothing wrong with you getting tearful when we worship together. In fact, there's something very right about our heart being involved in our worship. But Paul wants us to see it is best when our heart and mind are both involved, working together as we worship. We are whole people. Worship is not supposed to bypass our hearts or our minds. And our cultural context is going to dictate which side of this point needs to be emphasized most for us. Maybe even our personality, our church background, those things are going to determine which part of this each of us needs to hear most. Some of us need to know it is okay for our emotions to stay switched on when we come to church. Non-attachment is a Buddhist doctrine, not a Christian one. There's nothing uniquely worshipful about being frozen stiff. Others of us need to know the mind is a good thing. It can enter into our praise just as much as our heart can. There's nothing uniquely worshipful about going bananas. And worship that's been planned beforehand 
can be just as spirit-led as worship that is spontaneous. Now, in the case of the Corinthians, what they needed to hear most was that keeping your mind switched on is crucial in worship. The pagan worship that they all came out of was about surrendering your mind and getting hyped up into a kind of ecstatic state. And now, as Christians, they seem to think that is still the ideal for worship. And so it made sense to them that those who had the gift of tongues would let it rip in the church. What greater proof could there be that you were really into worship, that your heart had taken over? That seems to be what they thought. But Paul says, no, we're whole people. Our minds need to be involved too. And when our minds are involved, we will be aware of those around us. We'll be more able to worship in a way they can join in with. We'll not be having our own private party with God. We'll not be oblivious to our fellow worshipers. We will worship in such a way that they can say amen to what is going on. Amen means I agree, I'm with you. So as we close by applying this again to ourselves, we are a fellowship of very different people. If you're a less emotional person who's much more comfortable thinking things through, please don't look down on someone who gets emotional at church. It wouldn't hurt to share some of their passion. And if you're a person whose heart tends to rule their head, please don't look down on those who are more careful to reflect and consider. It wouldn't hurt to learn from them about glorifying God with your mind. We worship best when we worship with heart and mind. And when we're all careful to try and do that, there will be less danger of us being suspicious of one another. Less danger of us being alienated from one another. And we will grow in our ability to edify each other. We need God's help. And our last song is a prayer for his help. That we would be perfectly united as the body of Christ that his Holy Spirit would make our worship more glorifying to him. Let's sing, Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. <laughs>